Should we in this country, I mean, have you not read what's been happening in Wisconsin? Yes, I, I, I have. A school for children who can only use sign Correct. language. And 200, 200. of them have their, have their childhoods completely wrecked yeah. by this priest. And entreaties are addressed to the man who is now Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger, the man who was saying at the time that the only problem with the scandal was there was a press campaign against the church. The abuse was not the problem. It didn't take long to find a game where the object is revenge. Find and rape the woman who fired the player from his imaginary job. Most of this game we cannot show you. We tried to make a citizen's arrest of Rove and advanced toward him with a pair of handcuffs. Look what you did. You, you outed a CIA officer. You lied to take us to war. You ruined the country. Totally ruined the country. Drill, baby, drill, and drill now. The club features risque live floor shows with lesbian and bondage scenes. But a visit there by a political consultant has put Republican National Committee boss Michael Steele in the hot seat. Drill, baby, drill, and drill now. Piece of crusty French bread found its way into the Collider's inner workings, disrupting work for days. Professor Holger Beck-Nielsen explains his theory. It would look as if the future has an influence on what happens today or yesterday. So it would look as if some effect from the future goes back to us today. Thursday, April 29th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, and my co-host, David Osman. Thank you, Peter. Oh, my, oh, my. Bread in the super collider. I wish that was our <laughs> biggest problem, okay? You know? I really do. Yeah, yeah. I think we can we can find out about those strange quarks, you know, some other day. Well, what's more quirky than those games in that Japanese mall in which you, you've got to hunt down and rape the woman who fired you at your job? I mean, is, is this insane? Oh. Well, it's game stuff. I'm sorry. If you want to get me into games, I don't play games. I don't even play chess, let alone play really low-life, low-level uh, games on computers. I mean, this, I can't conceive of a bigger waste of time. And you know what's really irritating? What? They get reviewed on the front page of the entertainment section of the New York Times. Well, times change, Dave. I had a friend whose son moved back to live with them in uh, Santa Monica. And I went to visit him, or I went to visit them, and went by this room, this dark room, and I go in, and there's this guy. I must be 22 years old, sitting in front of three monitors, two of them hung in front of them, and they've got these, this game going, and he's got... Um, you know, you know, he's got a mic on his mouth, and he's working with his team, and it's a it's it's a kind of a capture the flag um, shooting game. You know, it's like mm, yeah, war, yeah. except it's it's very vague. You know, it's Asia, right? Mm. And you know, they're kind of more Asian than you are. You're not exactly sure. And when you shoot them, uh, or that's good. And when they shoot you and you die, you have to restore yourself. And but they're talking all the time internationally. Yeah. Teams doing this, mm. and he does it 17 hours a day. Oh, well, see, there's the problem. I mean, if then you have too much spare time. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. Uh, Preston loves it. My both my boys love to play uh, computer games, and it's it's not really such a big deal, and it does keep them out of the Marines. 
<laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but you know, I remember a time when the, the military not long ago said, well, we're looking for people that are good at games because they'll be able to push those buttons real fast yeah. and make those game-like decisions. Yeah. That war, that kind of war, I know it's raging right now. People sitting in refrigerated rooms in Las Vegas, killing people with predators, with drones at a distance. This is This is good. You know, this is this is the army spirit, right? The, yeah. the, what basic training do you need to sit in a refrigerated box and kill people at a distance? But you know that one guy who's sitting there doing that, he's how how many helpers in the world of the military do you think that guy has? Maybe 200 just supporting him alone. Maybe know? more, Dave. I think you're yeah. low because you know these defense budgets, nobody ever attacks them, right? Oh, no, 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 take no, no. away everything. They don't even mention it. The, the the Democrats don't even mention it. It's as if it's it truly is a religion. It's a religious thing. It's our yeah. Kaaba. Yeah. It's that great big box of money and danger that we need never talk about, although it's bringing us down. Yeah. yeah. What a time. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, it's taking away money from much more important stuff, for sure. Well, no question about that, but nobody ever questions it. I mean, as you say, it's never brought up. The issue is, and uh, and our our, our friends on the uh, on the uh, right, or the libertarian right, uh, it is always the defense budget is excluded from the things the government does badly. Libertarians, listen up. The government has been doing the military badly since you were born. 30 years before you were born, they were doing it badly. They have never done the military well. Well, we, we, we did gear up and win World War II. The problem ah, is, is that yeah. we were really ready to fight World War II right when it ended. I mean, yeah. in terms of the, most people in the Army think about logistics. You know, where's the stuff? Where's the toilet paper? Where's the, where's the gun? Where's the bullet with that guy's name on it? You know, it's, it's, it's all logistics and supplies. <laughs> it's and, you all know, going through the Kyber Pass now. And it's draining. It's draining, for example, our educational institutions of the money they deserve. Another chapter from the dreaded D-word journal. In this case, the D-word is depression. We are in a depression, but of course, you can't say that. can't say it on uh, national media. We're in a recession, a long recession. If you're really, really adventuresome, you can call it a deep recession, but then you have to back away from that quickly and say, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, we're in a depression, losing jobs, losing markets. Who's suffering? Well, not the guys at Goldman Sachs of crap. They're not suffering. No, it's the teachers. Teachers across the country are being fired willy-nilly. That means less education, less people prepared to go out and get jobs that someday will be there. Okay, school districts around the country. This is from the Gray Lady are forced to resort to drastic money-saving measures, and they're, uh, they're warning hundreds of thousands of teachers that their jobs may be eliminated in June. Now, that's really good for morale. I'm teaching. It's, you know, it's mid-spring, and I get a virtual pink slip. I'm really motivated. The districts have no choice, they say, because their usual sources of revenue, state money and local property taxes, have been hit hard by the recession. It's, it's true. As housing prices return to their real value, not their inflated bubble, debt bubble, you know, extraordinary Oz-type levels, and fantasy levels, as they go back, property taxes shrink, property taxes are used for running schools. Let's fire the teachers, let's close the schools. And the federal stimulus money that was earmarked for education has been mostly used up this year. That's right, they got by basically because 
they were given money from the federal government. Not my idea of a bad idea. Uh, you know, I'd rather give it to them than give it to prisons to put more people in jail because they smoked a joint. Anyway, as a result, the 2010-2011 school term is shaping up as one of the most austere in the last half century. In addition to teacher layoffs, districts are planning to close schools, cut programs in large classes, and shorten the school day week or year to save money. Oh, well, why don't they just close it all down? Why don't we just de declare the entire country a big homeschool? Anything you do, you get credit for. Anything at all. Uh, Districts in California, where I lived for many, many years, have given pink slips to 22,000 teachers. Illinois authorities are predicting 17,000 job cuts in the public schools, and New York has warned nearly 15,000 teachers that their jobs could disappear in June. Here's the deal. You lose your job as a teacher. You're qualified. You've gone through all of this education. What are you going to do? Sell pencils over the internet? All of a sudden, you're not there with any money, walking down Main Street. You got nothing. Uh, things are shutting down. Let's let's get straight about this. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan estimated that state budget cuts imperiled 100,000 to 300,000 public school jobs. Mm, this is in an interview. Uh, he said the nation was flirting with education catastrophe and urged Congress to approve additional stimulus funds to stay to save school jobs. Well, the, uh, Tom Harkin is interested in doing just that. Warning of this um, educational emergency, Senator Tom Harkin, the Democrat of Iowa, proposed a $23 billion school bailout bill. By the way, $23 billion, what's that? The cost of like three submarines that we don't need? So this is a $23 billion uh, bailout bill that would essentially provide more education stimulus funding to stave off the looming wave of school layoffs. But senior Democratic aide said that because Mr. Harkin's bill would add to the deficit, Deficit, it was unlikely to pass. Well, that's bad news. Here's a, some of the deepest cuts are in Los Angeles. As I say, I taught an after-school program in the Los Angeles schools for five years before coming up here to Whidbey Island. It's called Radio Club. Wonderfully successful after-school arts enrichment, and it turned out um, it became an intervention program because working in Radio Club, uh, kids raise their English uh, language arts scores a full level. Okay, so some of the deepest cuts are coming in Los Angeles. I know because a year ago, October, when the debt bubble began to burst, at least in the housing market, Los Angeles stopped all after-school funds. All after-school funds. Okay, Superintendent Raymond Cortinas there has already sent notices to 5,200 of the district's 80,000 employees last month telling them they were losing their jobs. That's 7.5% of the workforce gone. He said, I've been superintendent of the five major school districts and had responsibility for cuts for years, but not of this magnitude, not this devastating, he said. And there's no end in sight. Uh, he cut his district's $12 billion budget this school year by a billion, has prepared $600 million in cuts for the term beginning in the fall, and is looking ahead to a deficit for the following year of $263 million. I don't see this being over until 2014 or 2015. Well, for a certain group of teachers, that's not going to be a problem. No. These are the teachers who are languishing in New York City's rubber rooms. But there's light at the end of the tunnel again. Oh, that tunnel crowded. New York City and its teachers unions have agreed to do away with the rubber rooms 
which are full of teachers accused of wrongdoing or incompetence. Under the agreement, teachers the city is trying to fire will no longer be sent to the rubber rooms known as reassignment centers, where the teachers show up every school day, sometimes for years, doing nothing and drawing full salaries. The rubber rooms! Where's my teacher? He's in the rubber room! Instead, these teachers will be assigned to administrative work or non-classroom duties in their schools while their cases are pending. The articles in newspapers and magazines detailed teachers running businesses out of the rubber rooms or dozing off for hours on end. Now, who's in there? Well, maybe people who are truly, legitimately, you know... uh, responsible for inappropriate action, shouldn't be teachers, they're incompetent, maybe they fall asleep for hours and end in class, or maybe they're doing businesses out of their classrooms. But what about the innocent? What about the teachers who are innocent of the charges? Well, one, it appears, is Steve Ostrin. In fact, he is innocent. He taught at Brooklyn Technical High School and has been in the rubber room on Chapel Street for more than five years. This is after a student accused him of kissing her when the two were alone in a classroom. He's been acquitted of the charges of endangering the welfare of a minor in a criminal trial. He's innocent. But he remains in the rub room because the education department does not want him back in the classroom. So they can send him to purgatory on a whim. Oh, no! a soldier boy in the twilight of my youth when I still could feel love and a trust in above for the truth I fought with bravery then I left my gun the misery I've seen never wiped itself clean from my mind. Now I'd never, ever close my eyes completely when I'm
Recently, President Obama ordered his health secretary to issue new rules aimed at granting hospital visiting rights to same-sex partners. The White House announced the rule changes, which will also make it easier for gay men and lesbians to make medical decisions on behalf of their partners. Every day all across America, patients are denied the kindness and caring of a loved one at their sides, Mr. Obama said in his memorandum, adding that rules could also help widows and widowers who rely on friends and members of religious orders who care for one another. But he says gay men and lesbians are uniquely affected because they are often barred from visiting partners with whom they have spent decades. It's a huge deal, said David Smith, vice president of policy for the Human Rights Campaign, which worked with the White House to develop the memorandum. Nearly every hospital in the country will now be required to provide hospital visitation rights for LGBT families. It's an enormous step. In the absence of equal marriage rights in most jurisdictions, this step provides an essential right to LGBT families for a gay person or a lesbian person to spend time with their partner in a critical situation. In some instances in the past, hospitals have barred bedside visits by the person who has held the medical power of attorney for a patient. Gay rights advocates said the rules change was inspired by one of those cases involving a same-sex couple, Janice Langben and Lisa Pond. After Ms. Pond was stricken with a fatal brain aneurysm, Ms. Langman was denied visiting rights in 2007 by a Florida hospital. Although Ms. Langman had power of attorney and she and Ms. Pond were parents to four children, (laughs) four children, the hospital refused for eight hours to allow her and the children to see Ms. Pond, her partner, for 18 years. Ms. Pond died as Ms. Langman tried in vain to get to her side. Ms. Langman, represented by Lambda Legal, a legal advocacy organization, brought suit against the hospital Jackson Memorial in Miami, but lost. Now, Mr. Obama called her on Air Force One to say that he had been moved by her case. I was so humbled that he would know Lisa's name and know our story, Ms. Langman said in a telephone interview. He apologized for how we were treated. For the last three years, that's what I've been asking the hospital to do. Even now, three years later, they still refuse to apologize to the children and I for the fact that Lisa died alone. Mr. Obama campaigned, saying he would fight for the rights of gay men and lesbians, but he has been under pressure uh, since the beginning of his presidency to be a stronger advocate for their issues. The memorandum is intended to, quote, help ensure that patients will be able to face difficult times in hospitals with compassion, dignity, and respect, a White House spokesman said. By taking these steps, we can better protect the interests and needs of patients that are gay or lesbian, widows and widowers with no children, members of religious orders, or others for whom their loved ones are not always immediate relatives. Because all Americans should be able to have loved ones there for them in their time of need. Don't be afraid, my darling. It's only the fresh chef. Today, what should I say? Today, beignet or banana, or banana hats. To prepare, Cherie, take you only an hour in advance, cooking only 10 minutes. 
my darling. You need only two eggs and nine big bananas, which you must keep in the refrigerator for at least a week. That way they become old friends. It's always best to cook with an old friend. Now, just scrub the ingredients with lye soap and arrange them deliciously around terrine like this, you see? <laughs> Take out wheat and farina and rice, the salt, and pit them. Mm. Now kiss the eggs and drop the eggs into the tarina, crush them with a lead cudgel till the little white part looks like paint flakes. Then mix well while adding progressively some artificial milk. Gently perfume with growth fragments. Let it all stand out for an hour or two. Watch TV or uh, something. Then Eplush the bananas, tromp them together on a plate, and put them also under the hot fudge we prepared last week. Burn them till they are mushy. <coughs> Taste them, soft powder them with ground glass, and then, my darling, with a fine bottle of Japanese wine, preferably Nippon Cadet 62. <laughs> Extinguish the lights and eat in the dark. And, darling, remember, always serve this dish hot. Till next week, the French chef bid you remember the Frankfurter. Well, Dave, here's some interesting research. comes out of uh, Dartmouth Medical School. Okay. Up there where it's snowy and cold, so they <laughs> have nothing better to do. Then discover the following. Middle schoolers who are forbidden to watch R-rated movies mm-hmm. are less likely to start drinking than peers whose parents are more lenient about such films. New research on 2,406 children shows. That's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. It's a big. It's a big sample. Honestly, it is. Yeah. Um, well, now I've heard, of course, endless talk about the influence of smoking in movies on kids. That yeah. they'll. They, I don't think they'll R-rate a movie for smoking, but they will certainly PG thirteen it if someone's smoking in the. Yeah, film. yeah. They're very much against that. So I don't know. I suppose. Um, I suppose one has to believe that. Um, but leniency on the part of the parents must also go somehow hand-in-hand with... the researchers at the Dartmouth Medical School found that among those whose parents let them watch R-rated movies all the time... All the time. Almost a quarter had tried to drink without their parents' knowledge. That compares with 3% who try to drink among those who were never allowed to watch our movies. Hmm. He says, researchers controlled for parenting style and still found the movie effect is over and above that effect. Findings were published in the May issue of the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. And and I'm going to quote the the, uh, researcher here. Okay. The fact that they found an effect from the movies and they found an effect at that young age is doubly significant because a lot of research shows the younger kids use alcohol, the greater the risk. 
Which is true. Well, that's absolutely true. And I think it has to do with cigarettes. It, you know, goes for the cigarette use in movies, too. I mean, who didn't want to smoke after they saw all those glamorous movie stars smoking? That's what people did back in the 40s and 50s. That's all that Bogart and Bacall did all during the entire film is smoke. Sure. Well, they, they both had terrible breath, so they had, <laughs> you know what I mean. And it killed at least one of them. Now, the drinking thing, I, w- I was thinking of the other thing, which is I hadn't thought that Watching people drink in our movies makes you drink. It's also, if you're allowed to watch that many R movies, you've, at a certain point you say, I need a drink. <laughs> exactly my point, Pete. Well, that's where I was going to go. Yeah. But I, was, I had a frog in my throat and I couldn't. Well, you know, <laughs> if, you drank more, if you drank more, you'd either have fewer frogs in your throat or they'd be better company. I'm going to do that. Let's segue to something. So, you know, there's, and also they, they, noticed, they noticed in this article also that what they call PG, they, yeah. a lot of these people think is really just soft r so i don't think you get an r rating because somebody takes a drink in a movie no, no honestly no. i don't think drinking in film has anything to do with the r rating it ha- and and i don't think that there's that much drinking in r-rated films there is more killing yes there's more gunplay there's more car chases but people do not usually drink and have car chases at the same time well, i don't they, think if they do then they have they drink have car chases and have big accidents that's also maybe, very exciting maybe what happens is you take really nice everyday kids real yeah. kids and you make them watch or let them watch tons of R-rated movies, mm-hmm. and they become juvenile delinquents. They get hardened, and of course they're going to drink because they're going to start hanging out with people who've been hardened by R-rated movies when they were six who have taken up drinking and probably all sorts of other nasty habits. Well, hopefully they will stand around street corners and, and, and sing close harmony. More bad news from Afghanistan. Deaths of Afghan civilians by NATO troops have more than doubled this year. This is according to NATO statistics, which, according to military officials, jeopardizes the U.S. campaign win over the local population by protecting them against insurgent attacks. This theme just keeps reappearing. We, we're here to protect you. We're setting up all of these roadblocks and we shoot you if you come in the wrong color car or you're driving too fast or you don't give us the special secret signal. NATO troops accidentally killed 72 civilians in the first three months of 2010, up from 29 in the same period in 2009, according to figures released after General Stanley McChrystal, the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, issued measures to protect ordinary Afghans. Wait a minute. We're killing 72 instead of 29. And we've got this policy in to protect ordinary Afghans. Well, maybe these weren't ordinary Afghans that were being killed. Maybe these were special, extraordinary Afghans. Uh, Maybe they um, were college professors, or maybe they were daycare workers, or maybe they were musical prodigies. We haven't set up a format to protect them. I don't know. A Red Cross report came out recently said that the number of civilians killed and wounded by Taliban roadside bombs has soared in Kandahar, where NATO and Afghan forces are preparing for a major offensive against the insurgent stronghold. So where does insurgents a little tricky here, you know, insurgent, I live here, I wear a turban, and I live here, and I suppress women, and I'll kill you if I can. It's something along those lines. So the, the Taliban's no better. 
I mean, it's not like we're the bad guys and they're the good guys. Don't get me wrong. Dem the bad guys also. The problem is, is that they live there. And I don't see, if I look at the history of, of Afghanistan and particularly our history in Afghanistan since we started playing, you know, a spoiler to the Russians after they came in and uh, supported their phony Marxist government. We've been misfiring there for years. So the Taliban is hard at work killing Afghans also. This looks like a this is a joint venture. Uh, so some Afghans say the rise in civilian deaths may help the enemy. You think so? Quote, if it continues, people will abandon the government and join the Taliban, said a member of parliament. Mm, that's not so good. All right, so we're going to be losing people if we continue to do what we do. And if we don't do what we do, then what do we do? Well, the pace of operations this year is considerably higher than last, leading to a 75% increase in significant events such as firefights and weapon seizures, says the NATO spokesman, Lieutenant Commander Ian Baxter of the British Army. And he spells his name I-A-I-N. That's no way to spell Ian, but of course... Who am I to say? NATO forces have reduced airstrikes, which accounted for 61% of the civilians killed by NATO and Afghan forces last year. Okay, they've reduced the airstrikes, but the airstrikes were supposed to be part of some sort of effective uh, plan, right? We had this strategy, airstrikes, take them out. No, it turns out, killing too many civilians, no more airstrikes. Nonetheless, four people were killed by NATO troops recently when their bus driver ignored warnings to stop or slow down as he overtook a NATO convoy. The incident prompted an anti-American protest. Yeah, uh-huh, not the first and not the last of those. No system is 100% guaranteed, and regrettably, in a very small number of incidents, the warnings are ignored and the lethal force is used, Baxter said. Oh, night raids are another risk, mm-hmm, said a member of the... Uh, Afghan Human Rights Commission. In February, NATO and Afghan troops searching for a Taliban member killed five civilians in a night raid. In response, McChrystal ordered troops last month to avoid night raids on homes when possible. And on and on. A massacre, a response. A massacre, we won't do that anymore. Let's do this. Another massacre. At, at a certain point, all we're going to be able to do is build schools. And we're having trouble with that also. Okay, that's the Afghan war. How about the war at home? Computer networks essential to the Pentagon and military are attacked by individual hackers, criminal groups, and nations hundreds of thousands of times every day, according to the officer uh, nominated to lead a cyber warfare command. Hundreds of thousands attacks a day? Lieutenant General Keith Alexander said that one crucial reason that, def that Defense Secretary Robert Gates created a cyber command was the amount of attacks we're seeing coming into the Defense Department gateways every day. Cyber command. I was in the Army. I went in the Army in 1963, Fort Dix. You know, M1 rifles and people in my barracks just can't wait to get to uh, Vietnam and be helicopter pilots. I'm looking at them and all I'm seeing is skeletons. But, you know, it was canteens and bullets and tear gas and all this stuff. Oh, if there had only been a cyber command. Basically, a room full of gamers and nerds and hackers and people wearing thick glasses. Now, that's my idea of being in the Army. Uh, Senator Carl Levin, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, said the new command, Cyber Command, quote, warrants careful scrutiny because, quote, capabilities to operate in cyberspace have out 
outpaced the development of policy, law, and precedent. Why am I not surprised? You come up to somebody like over 45 and you say the word computer and their eyes begin to roll back in their head. If you say things like cyber command, firewalls, spiders, bots, viruses, they will vomit and pass out in front of you. So that's that's where the culture is right now. Uh, Levin again. This policy gap is especially concerning, he said, because cyber weapons and cyber attacks potentially can be devastating, approaching weapons of mass destruction in their effects. Okay, we get another Bush coup. Some Bush light comes to office, right? So he's going to what? Lie about the cyber attacks. So we can go in and invade where? Well, some of the biggest viruses in the last couple of years have come from the Philippines, Pakistan, and India. Right. Most of these people writing these bad viruses are 12 years old, living with their parents and working on a used Intel. But nonetheless, it may be necessary to drop cyber command on their head. Well, stay tuned. Johnny went to war at the tender age of 17 Went to fight the devil 9,000 miles away In a land that Johnny never even heard of We got him fighting devils And every day We send another on his way Think his mama prays for her baby Every day another demon makes his way Every day there's another devil
Do you remember those genuflexual aromas in seeding the atmosphere at the Vatican Lounge? Those cheerful entrepreneurs, smiling, all the while plastering the facade. Lattes, brioche, stracciatella e fongioli, blending the flavors by association. Madrid, Atocha, La Puerta del Sol. In the 60s, there was a taverna in the cider district called Café Coco. It was downstairs below a big stone building at the Rotunda. Their specialty, Spanish cider. A cold fermented cider of apples from Aragon. The waiter pouring from a pitcher held high overhead in one hand to a glass held behind his back in the other, not missing a drop but splashily filling the bottom quarter of the glass with a bubbly foam. Toma pronto. Toma pronto. Drink quickly before the foam disperses, before it's undrinkable. Then the cheese. Queso de Cabrales. A slab of yellow granular cheese on a plate, served with a small fork. Another specialty served only here at the Café Coco. In the dim light of the room, the cheese appeared unstable on its plate. A closer look indicated it was actually moving amongst itself in a strange dance on El Platillo, in frente de mí, ensconzando una buena autentic. No me diga. My mentor, Augustino Manolo Mendoza de Aguilera, took up his fork and showed me, closely, how to mash up the gusanos enredado en el queso. Y pues ya no movieron ello. I love the science section in The Gray Lady, The New York Times, which comes up every Tuesday. I always look forward to it. And here's a great story from that section. When it comes to voyages of discovery, NASA's venerable Cassini mission is about as good as it gets. In six years of cruising around the planet Saturn and its neighborhood, the Cassini spacecraft has discovered two new Saturn rings, a bunch of new moons, and a whole new class of moonlets. That's pretty good work, huh? It encountered liquid lakes on the moon Titan, water ice, and a particle plume on the moon Enceladus, ridges and ripples on the rings, and cyclones at Saturn's poles. Cassini also released a European space probe that landed on Titan, and Cassini has sent back enough data to produce more than 1,400 scientific papers at last count, none of which I could probably understand. But besides the science, Cassini is state-of-the-art in the arcane discipline of orbital mechanics, how to get from one place to another in space to fulfill a mission's science requirements without running out of fuel. 
The plans are for Cassini to keep working for seven more years, but it currently has only 22% of the maneuvering propellant it had when it started, and there are no gas stations in outer space. Figuring out how to more than double the duration of the mission with less than a quarter of the fuel is hard. Cassini's orbital mechanics present an astonishingly complex exercise in Keplerian physics and geometry. To me, any exercise in Keplerian physics is astonishingly complex. The enormous array of science objectives and targets, moons, rings, Saturn itself, makes it one of the most complex missions ever flown. This is really such good news. I mean, we can read about all the tsurus that's happening in the world, all the people doing the wrong things to the wrong people at the wrong time. But Cassini is working. It's a success. It's efficient. To my mind, it's romantic. Anyway, Brent Buffington, a Cassini mission designer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, compared the task of plotting the Cassini mission to arranging a seven-year road trip around the United States for more than 200 scientists, all with different interests and all waiting to see different things. This reminds me of family road trips I've taken. Now, he says, add the fact that you have a finite amount of time to design this road trip and need to adhere to the laws of physics, speed limits, the limited capabilities of the bus and the bus driver. He said, oh, and the targets they want to see are moving. Cassini arrived at Saturn in 2004 for a four-year mission, but it was so successful that NASA gave it a two-year extension to September 2010. Then, in February, NASA extended it a second time for what it calls the Solstice mission, uh, lasting until Saturn's northern hemisphere summer in 2017. If all goes well as planned, on September 15, 2017, Cassini will die a warrior's death diving inside the rings for 22 spectacular orbits of the fringes of Saturn's atmosphere before plunging into the planet. That is a true warrior's death. Cassini made it to its first two-year extension, in part because the science was simply too good to pass up. But another reason was that it performed so well and remained so healthy that it was left with enough unused propellant to enable it to maneuver through 64 additional orbits after having completed 75 in its first four years. One of the fundamental tools for adjusting the trajectory of a large manufactured object in space, the essence of orbital mechanics, is the gravity assist. As a spacecraft approaches a planet or moon, gravity grips it and flings it in a different direction. In the 1970s and 80s, NASA used the gravity assist technique to enable the tiny Voyager 2 to complete its grand tour of the outer planets of the solar system. Voyager 2 employed four gravity assists. The Cassini Solstice mission alone will require 56. Titan, Saturn's largest moon, is bigger than the planet Mercury, and it is the only thing in the Saturn system, besides Saturn, with enough gravity to make radical changes in the spacecraft's trajectory every time it flies by. Without Titan, we would go into one orbit around Saturn and be stuck there. Thus, Titan, in the argot of orbital mechanics, is Cassini's tour engine. The basic geometry of the Saturn system is not difficult to understand. Like Earth, the polar axes of both Saturn and Titan run from north to south and are canted slightly, which gives both the planet and its largest moon seasons. A Saturn year lasts almost 30 Earth years. I've had years in my life that feel like that too, all right? Cassini arrived at Saturn in the southern summer and will finish 13 years later in the northern summer. Being able to observe the change of seasons for half a Saturn year was the dominant principle in designing the solstice mission. 
For purposes of planning, the Cassini scientists were divided into five disciplines, those concerned with Saturn, with Titan, with the rings, with the icy satellites, and with the magnetosphere. Leaders of the group, beginning in early 2008, huddled with the designers every few months to examine orbits and argue their respective causes. There's a lot of competition in these disciplines, not just over target selection. Say, if you're interested in the magnetosphere, you collect data over long periods of time, while Titan is short bursts, and on and on. Last July, after six months of tweaking by Mr. Smith and Mr. Buffington, the final reference trajectory was delivered. It now includes includes 56 passes over Titan, 155 orbits of Saturn in different inclinations, 12 flybys of Enceladus, 5 flybys of the other large moons, and final destruction. I salute Cassini, the space warrior. We're lost. No, we're not. It's just ahead. Are you sure? Another few miles. Gotta be. You said that 20 miles ago. Keep to the right up here. How do you know? This looks right. You've never been here before. We're close. I can feel it. We're lost. Check the map. I dreamed about this place. You did? It was beautiful. We were dancing by the lake. There was music. We were happy. There's no lake here. Keep your eyes on the road. There'll be a lake when we get there. The cabin's on a lake. Ah. I've imagined it so vividly. I can almost smell the flowers. What flowers? Jasmine. Beautiful jasmine. And violets. Nah, I don't see any flowers. And I felt completely at peace. I'm starting to feel that way now. That's how uh, I know uh, we're... Uh, 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 there's another one. What? A tanning salon. Tanning? Every town we've driven through, even if it's just... One stoplight. It's got a video store and a tanning salon. They say even in these podunk towns, people have dreams. Of deep tans? Have we passed 63? I don't know. What's that sign say? I, I can't tell. Looks like a, a shotgun hit it. You didn't see Highway 63? Oh, look at that. On the left, look. Tony's World of Concrete. What? Oh, and gift shop. Oh, man. I think we're almost there. Yeah. Are we supposed to be in the mountains? Sam, I want to ask you something. Uh, okay. I've imagined myself asking you this and what you'd say. Visualized it. Every detail. You have? I know what you'll say, and it makes me so happy, but I have to ask you for real. Uh, okay. I can't wait for the lake, the flowers, the dancing, but I have to know. Well, okay, shoot. Do you still love me? Do I still love you? Yes. Do you still love me? I, I, I think we're lost. Well, we've been all over the place on this show, Dave. We've got uh, war on one hand where people are using technology to do each other dirt. And then we've got the the wonderful Cassini project out there. Mm. Where we're using technology just to take a few more turns around that gorgeous planet. I remember when we first started taking pictures of the moon and uh, when the fire sign was on stage very early at that time and we did this piece 
in which the moon got stolen. And the reason that the moon was stolen from the sky was to protect it from getting its nasty footprints of those landing vehicles all over it and taking pictures of its foot. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and b- bottles of Tang. I don't know, probably probably <laughs> cartons of Tang. Bre- Brendan Behan had that song, Don't Muck About With The Moon. That's there, right. there was that whole reaction to, I had a strange reaction to it. On that day, everybody said, come on inside, he's going to land on the moon. And I wouldn't. I, I oh. boycotted the landing on the moon. I don't know why. It just somehow it did at that point. Um, it just bothered me. You know, it doesn't bother me anymore. I got immediately a phone call afterward from our old friend Bill Malik saying, it's all a fake. They did it in Arizona. There are still people who believe that, Dave. There are still people who believe that we never landed on the moon, and there's a, there's a few others, too. You know, there's these great conspiracies. Well, yeah, that's where Obama was born, in the same place as the moon landing was shot. It, you it, know, yeah, Area 51 Area 50, yeah. or 57, and they moved that all around. So, okay, Something let's like round this off with another nice tang poem. A tang poem, yeah. Yeah, with tang on the moon is yep. one thing. Here's tang in hand. Well... This is a pretty one. I'll just read this pretty one called She Thinks of Him. I'm a peach tree, deep in a gorge, flowering, smiling, and nodding to no one. You were the moon high in the night sky, shining down on me one hour and then going on. A razor-sharp sword can't cut a stream of water. It foams across the blade, goes on. My thoughts don't stop. They are the stream. They flow. They follow you forever. Well, thanks, Dave, and thanks everybody out there who's either streaming or podcasting or doing whatever it takes to put Oz in your ears. Today's show produced by Bill McIntyre, our audio producer and engineer, Dave Maloney. John Cummings is our wizard of the ones and zeros. What makes it beautiful on RadioFreeOz.com is the work of the Oz Design Group. That's Phil Fountain. And I'm your host, Peter Bergman. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.